Do you like data centers? Cause I love data centers! I love data centers. We love data centers! Woo! Welcome and thank you for listening. This is your host, Sean Patrick Terrio, founder, CEO, and catalyst of Open Spectrum. What you can expect to find here on this podcast are fresh new conversations with some of the most successful, experienced, and fascinating players that I have met while working in the data center marketplace over the past decade. For those who already know me, this probably goes without saying, but I can assure you new listeners that there will be no marketing fluffery or sales BS here. In fact, this is specifically a no marketing fluffery and sales BS zone, at least for the next hour or so. My objective is pure. It's to simply share some raw, honest advice and entertaining stories that will hopefully teach you something new, maybe something thought-provoking and maybe even enjoyable about the industry that drives the brave new digital world that we live in today. If you've been doing any kind of business on the indirect side of the data center industry over the last couple years, let alone what I found out is the last 18 years, uh, you likely have come across the name Colotrack and you likely may have met Danny Boosted. Danny has become a friend of mine over the last year and a half that we've known each other. He is one of the most genuine people I've met in the industry and throws one hell of a party if anyone's ever been to his uh, the Colotrack party at the Channel Partner Expo in Las Vegas. I uh, even went to a party that he threw in New Orleans a couple of years ago where I saw hands down the best Michael Jackson cover band <laughs> to date that I've, ever, that I've ever witnessed. Never seen a white boy. Uh, seeing Michael Jackson like I did that evening. Anyway, Danny is awesome. I think you will love the conversation we have about the channel industry, the future of the uh, channel industry, how it's evolved over time. Uh, Walk through some of his background, which he's got a very interesting background, uh, how he got started in the industry. And I think you guys will appreciate the conversation with Danny and hope you look forward to uh, some of the cool things that he and I are going to be doing together this year. So without further ado, here is the next I Love Data Centers podcast episode with Danny Boosty. Danny, thank you so much for, for joining us here on the I Love Data Centers podcast. I greatly, greatly appreciate you taking the time. Well, thanks for having me, Sean. Appreciate it. Well, you are one of the most well-known characters in and around the data center industry, at very least from the channel side of the house, so the indirect channel side of the house with the the work that you've been doing for almost the better part of a decade, I think at this point, correct? Uh, this year, we celebrate our 18th year in business. We actually hey, just smokes. did a press release about it. Yeah, 18 years. Yeah. Yeah, so it's almost two decades. I was I was off by a decade, but uh, yeah. Um, so you've seen this industry evolve immensely, and have been one of the spearheads driving uh, the industry from day one. But for those who are are new to the broadcast and and don't know who you are, I've got a couple questions for you. One, the first at very least is where where are you right now? Like where are you located right now? Where are you where are you picking up this call from? Sure. Uh, at our headquarters, which is in uh, Parsippany, New Jersey, just about 30 minutes west of Manhattan. Have you guys always been headquartered there? Um, our starter office was actually in uh, Morristown, New Jersey. Uh, it was uh, in, uh, you know, typical like garage startup. You know, it was in the basement of a, of a building in, uh, in Morristown, New Jersey that had no windows. And that's how we got our start. And then uh, we moved up to, um, to um, Pinebrook, New Jersey for a few years. And we've been here at, uh, you know, this is our, our nice Class A office space that we like hosting and entertaining people here. We've been here since 2008, so uh, almost, uh, yeah, nine years. And so, Danny, for those who don't know you, what what is it that you what is it that you actually do? <laughs> Great question. <laughs> um, so we are a uh, broker uh, and master agent specifically focused on data center infrastructure services. So we have 413 
direct agreements with practically every uh, wholesale, retail, co-location, managed hosting, and 100 of those 413 agreements are actually cloud providers. Um, we do everything from uh, needs assessment, uh, RFQ management, sourcing, procurement, all the way through. So we do this for uh, a handful of direct accounts, um, as, as we did start off as a direct agency prior to 2009. Uh, but the majority of our what we do, about 95% of what we do right now, is to support our agents uh, and partners uh, in their projects and their deals. What's the name of the company? Uh, Colatrack. Yeah, so... so uh, Yep, that's um, and you know we've actually um, we actually our holding company name is is still Intrac Corporation. That's when we incorporated 18 years ago. We were doing design and build of data centers. That's actually how we got our start. So it was a very very we have very technical roots. Uh, we were designing and building and retrofitting facilities for uh, companies that don't exist anymore, like Genuity, KMC Telecom. A lot of a lot of these data center companies, Exodus. We did some work for them, PSINet. Um, and, um, like I said, so they're all gone at this point. And then in 2002, right after the dot-com bubble burst, we transformed the business into more of a B2B, uh, market maker, essentially bringing together a supply and demand for data center space at the time. And that's now evolved into what we are today, which is really a full service, um, uh, brokerage house for, uh, for data center infrastructure services worldwide. And I remember you telling me that story vaguely when we were having dinner in Las Vegas at the Channel Partner Expo last year. And I'd love to get into the story of how you kind of had that aha moment that there may be an opportunity in the space. But before we even get to that, what I'd also really like to know is how the heck did you get started? Like, how did you get technical? Was this something that evolved over time? Were you surrounded by technology when you were little and growing up? Did you have family that kind of geared you towards that? Or was it, like, how, how did you get into the, the world of data centers? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question, right? I think uh, for most of us in this space, and I'm sure you'd agree, it's not something you kind of grow up saying, you know, I want to get into the data center space. Uh, but here's here's basically my, my life story pretty interesting. So as a, as a young child, I always uh, was a techie geek, if you will. I was uh, captain of the computer club in high school. Yeah, I know. It was, you know, nice. big, you know couldn't, couldn't, I uh, had to knock the ladies off with it. <laughs> you know, uh, they were, uh, anyways, captain of the computer club was not very revered in, uh, in high school, but I loved it. Had a Commodore 64 when they first came out. I think I was 10 years old. Uh, when I got my uh, Commodore 64 and I started programming. So I, my love and passion was always there for tech and, and, and computers, um, but I was also a product of the 80s. So I grew up thinking I wanted to be Charlie Sheen from the movie Wall Street. <laughs> so I got all my education in, um, in undergrad in finance and management and went to work on Wall Street. I actually got a great opportunity for Merrill Lynch at the time and then over to uh, Chemical Bank before they bought Chase. And um, and I got were into that. Born, were you born and raised in upstate New York as well, or in around? No, New York no. Uh, actually, I was uh, I was born in Beirut, Lebanon. Came to the states when I was eight years old, so I'm actually a first generation immigrant. Yeah. Oh wow. And uh, yeah, we settled in New Jersey. That's where my uncle was at the time, and uh, we needed somebody to sponsor us to be able to emigrate here. Um, so yeah, came to the states uh, when I was eight years old in 1980. And um, haven't really moved out of New Jersey. I've always been in New Jersey. I lived in Manhattan for six years uh, in my 20s when I was pursuing my MBA at NYU. So yeah. So let's fast forward to that. So got you know so when got my I, let's ba- let's actually back up. So you, okay. you were you were part of the computer club in high school. You said right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So what, what got you interested in computers to begin with? Were, were your parents or did you have family in tech? No. Um, I didn't. I mean, I, I had some friends in high school that uh, I became friends with. You know, we were uh, the biggest uh, academic types in, in, in our high school and, you know, valedictorian, salutatorian type, you know, people that I, I just was hanging out with. And we were all big on on computers. I mean, it was, you know, that was when personal computers first made it to the home. Uh, you know, Commodore 64 was, was a novel thing. So we were one of the first uh, to really be all over that and start programming and just something I enjoyed and, uh, and loved. So, do, you, do you remember the moment when you were first introduced to, to all of that? And were you like, did you walk into a store? Did you go to a conference? Like how, how did you get introduced to it? 
Oh, no, I was, uh, like I said, at 10 years old or, or whatever it was, um, I uh, was over at my friend's house, who we were uh, captain, co-captains of the chess club in high school. Yeah, if the captain of the computer club wasn't enough, I was also a co-captain of the chess club with him. And he had gotten a computer first. He had uh, gotten a Commodore 64 first. And he was, uh, you know, one of these total rocket science types. In fact, he had really ended up growing up to get a, a PhD in materials engineering, and he actually is a rocket scientist for real. Huh. And, um, yeah, so that's the story of my friend who, you know, first introduced me to it. And uh, I remember just coming back home and saying to my parents, I want I want a Commodore 64, I want a computer. And I, I got it, and I started learning how to code, self-taught, and started doing that. Um, and that, was, uh, that was how I caught the bug initially. But then, you know, at the time, again, this is, uh, you know, think back, the, the Internet wasn't there. And um, at the time, still finance jobs were revered and, and you know, so my father actually uh, coached me into making sure I get a finance degree and learn about money and money management and things like that. And that was the that was the track that pretty much most parents uh, at the time. And again, being a product of of that uh, generation, um, and that's what then brought me into the world of finance. And um, you know, got my fi- undergrad in finance and management, double major, and then I went to NYU for my MBA in finance and international business. And then here's where the, it kind of brought me all back to technology and to, and to data centers. So I was finishing up my MBA, and the year is 1999. And uh, I had finished all my requirements, so now I had some free electives. And I decided to take them out of this newly created department. They had just created this department at NYU called e-commerce in 1999 because they didn't know what else to call it. And they didn't even have any textbooks. So they would just hand out stapled articles and, uh, you know, and the syllabus just told us where to go research this and that and the other thing. And then every week they brought in a guest speaker. That's what was great about that particular curriculum is they brought in a guest speaker every week from some dot-com that was out there doing it. And one week uh, this guy came in, very unassuming guy in his early 30s, and he started uh, talking to us about his dot-com that he just got Series A and Series B financing for uh, and how they were, you know, doing this pull supply chain and you know, all this technical stuff at the time. Again, I'm, I'm in, a kid in school at this point, getting my MBA. So we all line up afterwards, uh, after the session, and it's a big lecture hall. So I had to wait quite some time to talk to this guy. And I said to him, "Look, um, I'm not a huge gambling type. I, I, I don't know if I want to get in on the dot com side of things or on the application side of things." And I'm not that technical either. I'm not, I wouldn't say I was a developer by any means. Here I am studying for finance, international business. But I said, I'm really interested in this internet thing. Do you have any words of wisdom for me? And he said, yes, infrastructure. I said, okay, great. Went out to meet my friends at the bar in, in Greenwich Village. I had no idea what that meant, that word infrastructure at the time. Then the following week, I go back to class. I go up to the professor and I say, that speaker that you had last week, and he goes, uh, yeah, Jeff Bezos. I said, yeah, yeah, Jeff Bezos from, from Amazon. Uh, he, he told me uh, that I should get into infrastructure. And the professor then tells me, you know, that's actually coming down the pipe in two weeks on our syllabus. If I want to read ahead, here's what I should do. And, uh, and then at that point, uh, I, I got exposed to it. And, and, you know, from one word, one word of wisdom from Jeff Bezos, of all people, of Amazon, I uh, decided this is, this is where I want to be. It was something that I knew that no matter what the emerging technologies are or the app du jour or the dot-com of the day, I mean, no matter what changed on the, on, on the front end of things, there's no way to circumvent where the t- rubber meets the road. And, uh, and I like that stability, and I like the fact that um, I knew this was something that, that's going to be sustainable. Um, you know, and I like that. I'm not, uh, like I said, a huge gambler type, and I knew that was a stable end of the business to be in. And uh, I just decided this is what I wanted to do, and I actually quit my job after I got my MBA at uh, Chase at the time. With that, merged with uh, with Chemical Bank, and started uh, the company in 1999 in August of 1999 after I graduated. Right on, man. That's a great, great story, and the conclusion that you came around the infrastructure, the consistency of that infrastructure is almost the exact same conclusion that I came to after being part of the dot-com boom in Silicon Valley from 99 through 2003, 2004, when I started looking for a quote-unquote real job. And uh, I just realized that all these all these software companies and these app companies, these widget companies, at the end of the day, they come and go. But what 
what's most important is everything that it sits on. So the physical servers, which is the fiber optic cables and the facilities themselves. Uh, and to that point, you know, there's no there's no end in sight, right? With the the Internet of Things and just people constantly taking pictures and videos, all that data has to be stored somewhere, right? And that's yeah, yeah absolutely. I mean, there's there's three major uh, drivers for demand that we've barely scratched the surface of. You just said one of them, um, IoT, and then also as a subset of that, which is, is really has more bearing on our world than, than IoT, which is IIoT, industrial IoT. That that in and of itself, I mean, we're just barely scratching the surface there. And then, of course, big data. And then the third, I would say, is edge computing. I mean, as as, as drivers, these are going, uh, they're going to create a complete uh, demand and for data center infrastructure for years to come. I mean, even with virtualization, it's just raising the whole ocean for for demand uh, for data center infrastructure. One of the one of the best lessons I had on that topic in the business intelligence also related to, to all that and the sheer volume of data needed. I had a client who um, will remain nameless, but let's just say they, they were taking snapshots and videos of uh, the world all over the place uh, from space. And that if, if that volume of data alone wasn't mind-boggling, the next piece of the equation that they taught me was now you have to make sense of this data. So the fact that we have all this data is a huge volume of data. But as you start to process the data and create new scenarios and new um, new subsets of that data, it then exponentially increases. And that's where things really started to blow my mind and where you know I sleep soundly at night, which I'm sure you do. Uh, without any fear that the industry of the data center is going to be going away in the near future. I mean, save a global, you know, uh, 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 electrical pulse, you know, maybe a, a sunspot or something. Um, and even if they, even if that does occur, right, and everything gets fried electrically and goes back to ground zero, we now need to create all new infrastructure. <laughs> so it just creates even more demand for for the industry. Exactly. For- going on yeah exactly i mean even if uh, you know i mean even if we we, we consider possibly the most d- disruptive technology to hit the, the physical data center world since i got involved um you know which i would probably personally say is virtualization um long before there was cloud i mean you know we were talking about high density environments and there was doing so much more computing per square foot and i remember almost the same amount of panic in the industry uh, when when blades and, and and high density environments came out years and years ago, before anyone was even talking cloud, and uh, and and sure enough, it, even if we look now fast forward, including cloud and all the migrations and hybrid cloud, it still raises the whole ocean. You know, granted, it's taking a piece of the pie in terms of market share from the enterprise market, but it's a it's a piece of pie. So it's a it's from a much larger uh, piece of pie that a pie overall that there was before. And that's the point that I don't understand when I see a lot of people still writing to this day. I saw an article a few weeks ago, merely, where some guy was some editor. It's a big computer, it was computer world, I think it was. Some one of these big publications um, saying, "Oh, the you know the cloud is going to be the colo killer and the uh, end of data centers." And I'm thinking to myself, "Where do they think the, the the cloud lives?" I mean, it's just amazing to me when I hear this. I mean, certainly there there's a shift, and we've noticed it where a lot of the one U, two U, quarter rack deals have all now gone to public cloud. But, you know, frankly, and I'm sure you can attest to this, uh, we're fine with that. I mean, those were low-value, high-churn, high-volume type projects that um, that we're not really going to miss. Uh, and now most of our projects are, are enormous. They're, they're, they're huge type footprints, and, and, and we're doing wholesale, uh, co-location, retail. And then, we're, you know, like I said, we have 100 cloud providers, but we're doing, you know, the major enterprise type projects. So, um, I, I like where it's headed. Uh, it's been it's been very good for our company. We've had three record years in a row now. So, man, man, that's great to hear. So one of the one of the fun stories that uh, I know you have that I vaguely recall because I, I believe I was I was uh, slightly inebriated when we were having dinner, having this conversation last year, um, was you talking about the big early days of the industry when you started to work with the technology channel. Uh, association. Um, can you can you explain kind of how that 
how the TCA got started and what the initial thinking was behind it? Yeah, uh, I was actually the uh, the founding board president. So I was uh, myself uh, and uh, that initial board. We were there for the first five years. Uh, Peter Radzeski, you, you may know him. He was uh, he was my VP uh, throughout the entire time, and uh, it was really it was intended to be the, the industry's first and only true nonprofit trade association. Um, and, and the focus at the time was to try and legitimize, formalize, create a standards, best practices, and, and code of conduct, um, and try to kind of unite what we were calling at the time the wild, wild west, um, as it was in the uh, in the industry. And um, you know, it had a it had a good run. Uh, you know, that was quite some time ago. I, I've stepped down now for five years, and I was there for five, so it's probably ten years old um, at the time. The TCA. And, uh, but, you know, it's been difficult to, uh, uh, to corral, uh, a lot of these agents. Uh, you know, I, I hear quotes like, uh, oh, it's like herding cats and it's just, you know, it is still the wild, wild west. And I think, uh, the cloud has, uh, has made that even, uh, more of a problem because now it's even more fragmented. You know, there's even more vendors than ever before. There's more types of agents. You know, when we say the word agent, what does that even mean anymore? Um, you know, we're talking about VAR systems, integrators. I mean, it's expanded. The universe has just expanded dramatically over the last 10 years uh, since we started uh, the TCA. But, um, yeah, so that was uh, that was an interesting chapter uh, in, in my career. And I think it, um, it, it helped kind of, you know, catapult uh, myself and, and, and the company to, uh, to legitimacy. I mean, at the time where, again, we weren't 18 years old. We were eight years old. And um, so it was. Uh, it was kind of a big deal to be involved with such powerhouses as we were uh, at the time. And Talsus, I think, was on the board. And um, you know, there were some some heavy hitters: TBI, WTG, Microcorp. These were all the types of uh, companies that were involved in the in the foundation of uh, of that channel association. So, as you've seen the channel evolve, and and um, I think we made. For, for those listeners who may not understand what we mean by that, it, it might be worth us explaining, right? Um, and I guess, as, as I understand it, the evolution of, of channel and why channel exists is because the major telecommunication companies did not want to manage relationships with thousands of resellers who would be making a commission on the opportunities and business that they were bringing to the company. And so they started creating... A, a subgroup that they called master agents so that they could maintain relationships with maybe a dozen or a half a dozen uh, different agencies or firms who would then maintain relationships with the other thousands or hundreds of agents who wanted to clear business. And in return for managing that process and managing the, the volume of those people, they would get preferential pricing. So they'd get additional percentages um, than if someone just approach them off the street direct. And so they could keep uh, a higher percentage or they could keep a percentage and still be able to offer um, a, a good return for for the other agents, thousands of agents or hundreds of agents that they were managing. But um, Danny, maybe, maybe you could do a better job of kind of walking both me myself, to be honest with you, and those listening through the history of how how that industry has evolved, and you know what is the channel? Why does it exist for telecom and data center and hosting and cloud and and that whole space? Sure, um, I mean in general, just you know a lot of the carriers back then. I mean there weren't as many data center or certainly none, no cloud providers when we got involved 18, 18 years ago. Um, it was pretty much dominated by, by the telcos and the carriers and uh, those types of master agencies came about for several reasons, some that you touched upon, but, but uh, also to allow the independent agent to not have to deal with the onerous quotas and revenue targets and all these uh, gotchas that were in the, in the carrier agreements. So these master agencies served as a great resource to kind of aggregate and pool uh, everyone's business together so that they can actually, uh, you know, then hit those quotas. So as an independent agent or a smaller type company, heck, even when we got started, we were getting our carrier quotes through uh, through TBI or somebody like that, you know, just for our network quotes uh, to supplement our data center uh, contracts, which are all direct. But we were doing that because, uh, again, why would I want to deal with a carrier agreement that's so onerous and it's got all these quotas that they just will not budge on. Um, and that's really how that world started. But then 
what's what's happened, and this is interesting. I'm glad you're asking me this because it's it's come full circle, in my opinion. So there was a where there was a time when that was the case, and everything you said actually held true, uh, where master agencies were negotiating superior agreements because they were aggregating and they were committing to quotas that the individual uh, agents under them could not and you know hit directly. So the sum of the parts was greater than was greater than the whole, and it worked. And it was it worked for a long time. However, what's happening now is there's so much saturation of quote unquote master agencies because one of the things we tackled in TCA kind of to kind of bring it all together was to try and formalize the definition of master agency. We were very unsuccessful with that because no one wanted to commit to that. So right now, anybody and their mother can say they're a master agent, and they do. They sign up, I don't know, five, ten vendor agreements. They have five sub agents under them. They're a master agency. They're going out there. They're saying they're a master agency. Their websites say they're a master agency. And uh, and what that's done is it's completely created a race to zero. This is my, my phrase. I'm, you know, you can quote me on this. It's a race to zero. Because what's happening now is vendors are giving those types of companies the same terms that the master agencies are getting, especially in our world. So um, there's it's almost now squeezing the margins to zero. I mean, I, I met with partners in this very Las Vegas show, agents, and uh, – they know it now. They have so many masters, quote-unquote, competing for their business and vendors competing for their business directly that they can go direct to now because they'll sign them up as well and give them the same terms. So now they're, they're, making, they're, they're creating, they're setting their terms. They're saying, I want 90, 95, 100% pass-through. Some, I hear about some deals. We won't do anything like that. Uh, I, I'm, I'm, I'm into sustainable relationships and sustainable strategic partnerships. Um, I'm not going to build a company that's just about top line and not profitable. Uh, there's nothing sustainable about that. So I'm, I'm, I try to build a traditional business, but I hear about this all the time. And um, and, and what's going to what it's going to do, in my opinion, is it's going to turn a lot of those big master agencies into having to do their own direct sales and marketing again. And some are already doing that under the radar, uh, without any press releases, without any big to dos. They're actually building in-house direct sales and marketing forces to go out there and try and to get to the end user and the clients um, directly. So it's almost come, it's coming full circle. This is what's happening now. That's what the saturation has done. And, and again, that race to zero. I mean, how do you sustain a business? Uh, some of these master agencies spend a lot of money on branding and marketing and events and, and sales support and sales enablement and tools and software. Where is that coming if you're giving away 90% of a deal? I mean, that's your, your gross profit, and then out of that is G&A and, and every other expense that it takes to run a company. You know what, it's, what it takes, right, Sean? I mean, it's, it's, um, I think we're, we're hurting. Master agencies are hurting each other with, with the way it's, it's been done. And, you know, TCA, I think, tried to uh, create some standards and best practices and, and protocols, but uh, uh, I think the, uh, the Wild Wild West uh, sort of kind of uh, won, won that battle, and yeah. And like I said, this is what's going to happen now. And uh, I don't think this is good news for agents because because they keep squeezing the masters for more and more points. Um, they're basically going to make them into their biggest competitors. Yeah. Right? Imagine if, uh, if TBI decided, you know what, I'm going to become start doing direct sales and marketing 80%. I'm going to direct 80% of my resources to that. They'll blow away their own agents. <laughs> you know, some, yep. some, any of these big master agencies, if they decided they wanted, they wanted to do direct sales and marketing, okay, they're going to get to the client and stay with the client better than some of these independent agents will. So, so um, yeah. So I've I've got an interesting story because when I when I started out, I started out not even knowing Colotrack. I, I hadn't even heard of who you, who you guys were and what you did. And so I said, hey, if someone could add a level of intelligence to the selection process, because I, I had helped QTS data centers, you know, data center realty trust who hadn't gone public at the time, build their channel from scratch. I'd helped a prior firm out of, out of South San Francisco build their channel from scratch and started developing these relationships in the quote-unquote channel industry and just realized that there were so few people who spoke the language of the data center marketplace. They understood connectivity or real estate, but they didn't really get data center. So I said, screw it. I'm going to start a master agency that's just focused on data center and hosting services. And I did that for a number of years. And it quite literally was last year, shortly after you and I talked, that I had a couple things happen. I, I started, you know, I was, I was very um, naive 
into thinking that if I was adding immense value with a service provider by making the process absolutely uh, stupid proof and just simple for them to get deals by giving deals on silver platters, meaning there was no no sales rep was needed or really no SE was needed in a deal because we would just pre-vet, pre-qualify an entire opportunity and walk a done deal into the door for a service provider that they would treat me differently, that I would get a, a higher level of respect and the same type of percentage as, as we've been talking as some of the, the larger uh, master agents who, who push them more volume, but who required more heavy lifting. And what I realized after doing business for a couple years and then eventually having to pay like 30 some odd thousand dollars in legal fees because I got screwed on a couple contracts with clients who were upgrading. So they were, there were upgrades and there were renewals with existing clients um, that I, I said, you know what? I, I didn't build a company to have to deal with, you know, legal just to get paid for adding value uh, in a relationship. And the the headache involved with the accounts receivable, the, with the accounts payable, with auditing, um, who's got what deployed where, uh, what they're actually paying, it's it's a nightmare. And so it took, it quite literally took me being the stubborn entrepreneur that I am, a couple of years to really appreciate the role of a master agency who's going to hold that contract, who's going to negotiate that contract and then make sure that the terms are followed by the service provider um, to, to finally succumb and give in and start pushing and migrating the entire book that I have over to a master agency and different master agencies. So I, you know, I can totally appreciate a, an agent's desire to ask for a super high compensation amount, you know, that 90%, uh, in some cases, as you're saying, 99 to 100%. But the real question is, what value is that master agency serving you? And if they're doing all the heavy lifting uh, within an account, and they're also, you know, holding that quota, then there's there's value there. And I think, you know, I'm not too concerned about the race to zero. And we can talk about this. I'd love to get your your, your feedback on it. Because I see those agents who are who are at the end of the day, just being that naive and greedy as not being those agents who are also the ones who truly understand the customer and understand the conversation that needs to be had with the customer. Um, and so, yeah, in, I couldn't, I couldn't agree more. We don't, we don't sign those up. I, you know, I, they, we get approached by them and, and I kindly and respectfully decline. And I, and I say, look, I mean, it's, it's not going to be, a sustainable relationship. Um, we tried it once in the past because uh, I had a personal connection to the agent, and I said, you know, yeah, I'll do this for you. And we did it at a very low margin, and it just ended up uh, wasting so many resources here, quoting out, and didn't really have ownership uh, of a lot of their clients or a lot of their deals. It was just constantly, constantly spinning wheels, quoting out, and uh, and we closed very little business over eighteen months, and I, and I had to, you know, have that tough conversation over a beer with, with the, with the partner and say, look, we, I, I can't do this. I mean, it's literally my channel managers are complaining because it's affecting their commission checks too. All right. So my guys, even though they're all on, you know, very nice base salaries, they, they do like to also make commissions. And, uh, you know, if they're, if I give them an account like this, they're, they're not going to be happy. They, they want some, you know, a, a more worthwhile type agent partner, like we've talked about. And then we've got tons of those. And, and, and that's, that's what's made us, uh, you know, thrive over the years is that we, we're very selective and uh, we don't just, we're not into the big numbers. You know, I don't want to go out there and say, I have 800 agents. Okay. How many of them are really producing and what, what are the splits? What's your actual EBITDA on those? Um, so, you know, so we, we've built just a, a solid, solid business. I mean, you could take away my top four, top four receivables and it's a moderately bad year. And you and I know, so there's companies out there that if you take their top one receivable, their top one agent, they're done. <laughs> they're just right. done. Yeah. Um, and I, that's, that's not the kind of business we've built over 18 years. So, um, again, that's part of my risk profile personally, which is why it was nice that, you know, you asked me all those personal questions because I'm, I'm into building a traditionally sound, solid business. That's, that's my risk profile. Um, you know, but, um, Hey, you know, to each his own. And 
But uh, we're not, uh, like you said also earlier, that's cost me a little bit because like my marketing guy says, uh, who I just recently hired and he, and he got to know the company and the first thing he said to me, he goes, God, you guys suck at pounding your chest and making noise. For, for your capabilities, you should be the gods of this industry. It's amazing. Nobody, like, there's people that still don't know you. 18 years, 413 direct agreements, Sean. You can add up the top three telecom master agencies. Forget even our space. Just telecom master agencies. They don't add up to 413 direct. Yep. Right? And 100 of those are cloud. Nobody knows that. So, you know, there's others that have branded themselves with messaging and marketing and social media that they're, you know, cloud experts and cloud. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> we've worked we've worked on over 3500 projects in our 18 year history. I mean just this, this that's it alone. I mean that's that's those are you know that's the walk we walk so yeah and that I can attest to the time energy and effort it takes to create and then manage that many relationships is is <laughs> it's nothing to be laughed about uh or or poo-pooed. It's it's impressive to say the least. Oh, thank you. Yeah, and it's just uh, you know, and, and look, uh, I, I realize our limitations is that we, we're not we're not really good at making noise and marketing and messaging and branding, and and that's why we hired this guy. And we're hoping that over the next uh, couple of years that that we'll be able to definitely get that word out there that uh, this is this is who we are. This is how long we've been doing this, and uh, you know, there's really, I mean, it's it's we should any data center project should really you know, fall in our, uh, we're not looking for the carrier projects. I'm not looking for SIP truck. I'm not looking for your network business. You know what I mean? We're so laser focused. Uh, I've, t- I've said this to partners like, Oh, we work with so-and-so we work with this master. And I'm like, good, continue to work with them. Cause I don't want your network quotes. I don't want your bandwidth quotes. I don't want your, uh, uh SD WAN quotes. And this is what we do. If it's anything data center infrastructure, whether it's wholesale, retail, colo, managed hosting or enterprise cloud infrastructure as a service, we should be your only resource. And, uh, so now it's just a matter of getting that word out there, right? It's it's all about the, the marketing and the branding. Yeah, and I, I I love and I will continue to to repeat the uh, the message that Larry Allison spoke to a crowd about when he was asked uh, early on in the you know the quote unquote cloud days, what is Oracle going to do with the advent of cloud? You know, are you are you do you feel threatened by the advent of cloud computing? And he basically just laughed at the guy and went on, on a rant, which you can pull up if you just YouTube, what the, you know, what the fuck is cloud computing? Um, and you pull it up, Larry Ellison, what the hell is, or what the hell is cloud computing? Uh, it will come up and it's, it's very much worth listening to. I play it during all the different training seminars that, that we host as a business because he basically says, all we're going to do differently is market ourselves differently. So we'll wrap a beautiful cloud around our products um, and, and say that you know we're doing cloud computing now because what we've been doing is no different than what everyone else is doing today. And to your point, it's all about marketing. And that's where um, you know, one of the, the key, key things in our industry is actually understanding the language. So you don't just take a sales rep's word for it. You can actually dig under the covers and understand what's really going on here. How can this company support my business? Um, and in what tools, what tools do they have and how have those tools evolved and how many people are trained on those tools and know what they're talking about within an organization. And that's, that's really where the rubber meets the road and where I think a lot of these agents are, um, I think if they don't learn the, the language and they expect the same old, same old uh, process to continue to play out over the next 5, 10, 15 years, some of these guys are long enough down the road where they've got a nice residual coming in that they're just going to you know, retire and probably be, be happy until that base wanes and other people come into the accounts and poach the accounts um, and who are adding more value in that conversation. And so um, that's where I think you and I are both aligned in our desire to educate the community and get people as smart as possible so that they can add more value in those conversations. Um, it yeah, really tr- absolutely. Yeah. I, I couldn't agree more. And that Ellison, uh, quote, uh, the, the quote, I, I'm familiar with the video. Um, <laughs> I, that, that video inspires me because, as you know, many times I've been approached by even my closest friends, oh, what are you going to do? Seven years ago, eight years ago, I remember one of my friends in tech 
oh, what are you going to do with this whole cloud thing? I mean, you know, I could probably get you a job here. <laughs> I'm like, what? <laughs> and, and if you actually look at, I actually did an article. I did a blog uh, November of just, just this past year, uh, the evolution of the data center, what a difference 17 years make. And in there, I actually compa- I say, I compare uh, these, these comments that people make, oh, is this going to be the end of the data center, the end of co-location, to trying to equate that Uber and Zipcar are going to be the end of the auto industry. And, and I actually go into it how Uber and Zipcar are actually the virtualized version, the cloud version of the auto industry, how all of a sudden those models are just a different way to still get you to transport yourself from point A to point B, but per use, right? It's actually taking the whole concept of what, there was a time when you only can get into a car by buying it. Then all of a sudden, Chattel mortgages came out, and then you can finance a car. And then leasing came out, and now you can lease a car and actually rent it essentially every month. This is the evolution. Uber and Zipcar have taken that to now the, the, the central, the, the actual processing unit, the utilization, which is mileage. You're really paying per mileage. And has, what has that done? I actually went and researched it. And since Uber came onto the market, came onto the scene in 2010, look at sales of autos. Look at any kind of related uh, industry and anything like services, cars, tires, infrastructure, civil infrastructure, all of it has gone through the roof because it's raised the whole ocean. It's not like now because I have Uber, I'm no longer going to buy a car. But even if I started using my car less, what has it done for total miles I spend in a car? I used to walk when I lived in the city. Now I Uber everywhere. I know tons of Manhattanites, same thing, in all major metropolitan centers. They used to walk or take the bus or use their metro car to take the subway. Now Uber's made it so easy. With an app, I now convert those into auto miles. And auto miles are basically computing cycles. And if, and if you compare the two industries, it, it fits perfectly. I haven't read this anywhere else. This was like my, my thing. It just came to me one day. And... Uh, <laughs> And, uh, and it's true. If you, the, all the facts and the stats back it up, and they're all in my article about it, it's, uh, it, it cracks me up when people still, you know, I, like I said a couple of weeks ago, I saw an article with a headline of, you know, cloud, uh, you know, soon to end the world of data centers. And I was like, what? Yeah, I think I saw that same article. And I'll definitely put in the show notes the, the link to your blog post. I remember seeing that pop up on LinkedIn uh, at the end of last year. I definitely, definitely will do that. So let me talk to you about this. You probably also remember the early days of the Channel Partner Expo, right? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, and I know your your face has been there for all eight years that I've, I was going. This year was actually the first year in literally eight years that I was not in attendance in Las Vegas. Um, and I've been to... Uh, been to the party that you that you threw at Dre's nightclub a couple times, which is absolutely unreal, awesome. And everyone that, that goes to Vegas, I don't think I've told you this, but everyone who goes to Vegas, I say you have to get an invite to to the Colo Track party because if there's anything Danny does know how to do, which he knows how to do a lot, is he knows how to throw a pretty kick ass party. Um, and so I, I probably directed a good 50, 60 people your way over the last couple. Nice, months. thanks, brother. Um, so I'd love to just kind of hear how you how you've seen that show evolve and and what you think some trends are that that are occurring in in the space. Yeah, I mean it's uh, certainly has grown. Um, it certainly has become uh, far more diversified than ever before. I mean, if you just look at that exhibit hall and the types of uh, vendors and booths that you've got there, um, and I think that's that's the thing. It's it's they've done a good job of remaining current and relevant. Uh, by by staying you know step in step with the convergence and the evolution that's happening, um, I think uh, you know in general we stopped exhibiting in '07. <laughs> that was the last time when actually we quit while we were ahead. And '07 was the last time we exhibited, and we won booth of the year and theme of the year for that year. We have nice. the trophies right here in our conference room and so forth. But then what we realized is for us, for us, not for anybody else, or any other master agency that's doing telecom or network services. But for us, again, it's such a small audience that sells what we sell exactly um, that at this point we've got them all under contract and anybody in the channel who's selling data center uh, services, they know they know we exist. Like you said, I mean, you know, not when you get out of the, the circles, but in these circles, I think they pretty much know who Colotrack is. And uh, so we weren't seeing the ROI. So we decided, you know what, let's just direct our resources on, on just 
saying thank you. And and that's really the the whole thing with the parties. You know, you just say, you know, we throw kick-ass parties because we try not to, you know, sit there and sell anything to them at the parties. We're not going to do a presentation or speeches or anything. There's none of that. It's just genuine gratitude. Thank you for putting us in this situation. Thank you for sending us business. Just have fun. Have a drink on us. And let's just, you know, for those few hours, just not think about anything but having fun and, and, and detoxing. So it's, um, but yeah, the channel itself, I mean, it's, it's gone through several, several iterations and now there's this new company that's running it. Um, I think, uh, programming is fine. I, I, you know, I think the, uh, the topics, um, I think the exhibit hall hours, what I hear is, is getting tighter and tighter. And it's, uh, I'm, I'm really curious to see how many more people will continue to exhibit. I think that's one of the reasons also we pulled out is just because the number of hours for the amount of setup and, and expense for, to exhibit, especially if you have a 2020 booth, collateral, staffing, premiums, anything like that. I mean, you're looking at fifty to $100,000 easy to exhibit there um, if, if properly, 20 by 20 booth. And I just don't, I don't know if the, the ROI is there for the amount of hours, but uh, certainly the, the, the content has been good. Um, and, uh, and like I said, it's expanding. Uh, so that's good. I don't, I don't, I think it's a, it's a good show. I'd like to see another one in the space. Um, I know Burr's just tried to, uh, with channel vision, uh, to get something going there. And, and I, and I hear that he's getting some traction. Uh, but it would be nice if we had more than just that one in the indirect channel specifically. Yeah. And, uh, I think the other one, well, they have two, right? They've got the, the cloud partner expo that occurs in October, November-ish timeframe, right? Yeah, the next one's in Austin uh, in late September. Now, I don't know, I'm hearing a lot of people aren't even going to that, so we're, we're, we're not sure what we're going to do for that. But yeah, we try to save our big splash for the Vegas one, the annual one. No, I meant like another company to do it. It's still you know the same company, same people kind of thing, just a different label. I think they call it Cloud Evolution or Cloud Partners Evolution. Um, well, the um, the key thing that that you hit on was the the showing gratitude and appreciation, and also the understanding and realization that the majority of the conversations that people remember having, or that that are of the most value, uh, of of the most value when they're at that show, is when they're sitting down with someone and having a meal or having a drink together and sharing stories, right? And that's almost exactly why I started this podcast. Is I realized that talking at people is nowhere near as valuable as talking with people. And it's those conversations when you can just have a very candid, real, raw conversation with someone that you really start to learn. Um, you don't feel like you're being sold anything because you're not being sold anything. It just, it is what it is. Right. And it's, yeah, it's so true. You know, after 18 years at this and as long as you have, it's amazing how sometimes the most basic things that you see in every sales presentation you've, you've ever learned or book you've read about the people do business with people they like. And, and, and you really, you know, everyone's got this script and their slide deck and, and uh, you know, their slicks and they just vomit product catalogs at you. And at the end of the day, I really, I mean, after 18 years at this, at this specific career, I, I, I completely wholeheartedly can tell you that it's that people do business with people they like. Um, you know, we, we've got uh, relationships with companies that have told us that they can get a better split from another master, but they like working with us. And I hear the same thing back from another partner where, you know, we try to recruit a partner and they're like, you know what, uh, I've been working with this other partner. We like them, uh, even though they're not giving me a great split, I still like them and I'm going to stay with them. And I say, you know what, rock on. Good for you, because if you were my partner, this is exactly what I would want to hear. Um, you know, and, and we're going to just continue doing that. We're just going to, that's, that's our corporate culture here. You ask anybody about us, we, we try to always do the right thing. Um, and, and, and we're, we're real, <laughs> you know, that's the thing We're we try to really get to know our, our, our partners. So having negotiated all these contracts with service providers around the world, quite literally, I bet you've got some interesting stories, uh, that have come out of that. Um, just introducing yourself and working with, I mean, you truly do have contracts with some of the most obscure uh, providers in the industry all over the place. Um, yeah, you know, and it's actually, uh, it's made for an interesting um, accounts payable list. So what I'm, get, what I'm getting at is if, if you actually got, a, got, your, got your hands on where my monthly outbound commissions go to every month, it would be actually uh, jaw-dropping because it's some of the who's who in our space that 
uh, even though they're seen as direct competitors uh, in some ways, but they supplement their portfolio of direct vendors with ours. Because like you said, I mean, not only that, but 30% of all our deals have been overseas over the last 18 years. So we, we, we're in every country and territory uh, at this point. And like you said, they're obscure, odd markets, tier three markets. Uh, so, um, so yeah, even some of the biggest and baddest uh, master agencies out there still, uh, you know, team up with us on, on a lot of the international opportunities and a lot of the more difficult markets and multi-region deployments. Um, yeah, it's, uh, it's kind of where, where it's taken us. And, but it's also, it's also the business model, right? Right from the get-go, I never wanted to play favorites with vendors. I never wanted to, um, uh, my, one of my favorite things to say is we're the largest company that will never win Master Agent of the Year award. And it sounds like a, a, a contradiction, but that's exactly right. Now that you have we'll a never, new director of marketing, Danny, that might change in the near, in the near future. You know, oh, yeah. No, but because of the, no, because of the distribution, because we don't pick 40 companies out of the 400 and say this is just all we're going to focus our marketing dollars on. How could you win Master Agent of the Year when – You've done just as much top line, if not more, than some of the other masters who win that award, but it's spread across a lot more vendors worldwide. So no one player does that well in Coldrack by themselves. That's the thing. Um, and, and because we've always wanted to take a more customer-centric, truly vendor-agnostic approach. And, and, and that's what I emphasize truly, because everybody says vendor-agnostic. How could you be vendor-agnostic if you don't include, if you're not inclusive of all options in a particular market? How do you say that to a client or a representative of that client, a consultant or an agent? Yeah, we're vendor-agnostic. Okay, who do you have in Atlanta? Well, we have these 10. That's odd. Uh, Coldrack has 37. What happened to the other 17? Okay, just you mean a vendor agnostic amongst the vendors you decided to sign up. Okay, gotcha. You know what I mean? It's 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 the biggest sham, in my opinion. The whole, you know, the use of the term vendor agnostic. I, I, everybody uses it, but I don't think it's legit unless you've you're offering up options to every vendor in that market to your yeah. client or your, your client's agent. Yeah, and and on top of that, uh, my favorite is when people start talking about spiffs and I still get, you know, you probably still get the same emails that I get every single day from a carrier or a service provider that's offering a spiff, trying to leverage that as a tool to encourage deal flow to come their way. And I say, look, if, if there's a spiff involved, if we do a deal, uh, awesome. We're happy to take it. We're going to hand it straight back to the client, but that's not going to incentivize us to encourage a client to come one way or another. If you're the right fit, you're the right fit because you're adding the right value for a client. It's not because we're going to get an additional five grand, two grand, ten grand, or a crew somewhere uh, that we're going to steer business your way. And to your point, you can't uh, honestly say to a client that you're vendor agnostic and that you are just agnostic in general and providing a valuable consultative service if what you're doing is really just directing clients towards whoever's going to make you the most money on the back end. Yep. And this is, but sadly, um, this is not the majority, the way you're, you treat spiffs and this, this philosophy that you have, which we share obviously in, uh, this is not the majority and, and it does unfortunately work and it does, uh, create, uh, an environment where agents are veering business and traffic towards specific vendors, master agencies. I mean, that's what I mean. They, 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 they focus on a handful, a couple of dozen vendors, and they get deep in bed with those vendors, and, um, and, and they're promoting them, and, and only them. So, um, yeah, it, it'll be interesting to see how, how, how sustainable, again, some of these things were, I'm, I'm, I'm witnessing over the last few years. It's definitely changed. Uh, I will tell you that, that the channel has definitely changed. And I, I just I wonder if it's going to all come full circle where – it's going to come to a point where these master agencies are going to go back to basics. You know, at what point giving up 90% is that is, that, is going to raise a, a flag and say, you know what, this isn't sustainable. We're going to have to do direct sales and marketing like we used to. You know, and, and, and most of us started that way. Like I said, for the first 10 years of our life, for the first 10 of the 18 years, we were a direct agency. It's only been for the last eight years that we opened our doors and shared our contracts with uh, sub-agents. Well, I think from at least what I'm seeing from the subgroup of of master agents that I, I work with these days, and truth be told, I, I do a lot of work with Microcorp out of Atlanta, um, in part because there's a lot of quid pro quo. You know, they they leverage our training, and we're brought in to help educate and train those agents of theirs that are are wanting to learn more and wanting to learn the, the language of the industry and do workshops with us to help get them educated on how to start the conversation with their customers um, and get involved in those more complex deals. Um, and so 
you know, we serve as overlays, right? So for me, that's where I'm more than happy and comfortable to have them step in as a master because I feel like there's there's value going both ways. So we're where their approaches as a business is yes, they want to work with with agents and they want to make sure that the the experience is as awesome as possible. They realize, just like all the rest of them, that there's a subgroup of these agents who are going to be doing the vast majority of their business. And those that subgroup tends to be very loyal. And so to your point, right, you could be paying them or they could probably get a better deal elsewhere, uh, but they choose to do business with that master because of the loyalty that they have, the relationship that they have, the value that they're getting from that relationship with the master agency. Um, and it's the, you know, the fly by night agents who are just going to push business to whoever's going to pay them the most. I just, there's a couple of those guys that are successful, just like, you know, our space, we do business a very specific certain way. That's not right for everybody. That's not the best fit for everybody. Does that mean that we're successful and they're not successful? No, there's, <laughs> I'm sure you've met, I met some plenty successful people who are all about the bottom line and making the money and all about just their own selfish interests. Um, you know, you can be successful doing that. That's just for me personally, it's not the people that I want to work with and the type of business that I wanted to to create. You know, I didn't leave corporate America just as you didn't leave corporate America to start a business just to build something that just makes money. You wanted to build some, build something that you could be proud of and work with people that you wanted to work with that you didn't have to constantly be looking over your shoulder wondering who's going to screw me next. Yeah, uh, it's totally true. And this is you know, again, why I got involved with that with the TCA, the nonprofit, uh, you know, trade association. But um, you know, it's unfortunate that that never really took uh, took over, and uh, it was supposed to. I mean, we even went as far as creating a certification program and different modules for the different products out there. But um, you know, again, yeah, they're it's trying. Uh, they're trying. I know Rob trying. Butler is yeah. who's the the current president is is working, and he's trying to to make it happen. Um, but to your point, yeah. you know, he's. I think he'll freely admit that he's he's having to work really really hard at it to to prove the value in the industry. Yeah, it's definitely hard work. I I, I got a chance to meet with with Rob and Evan and, and Peter, and you know, it's kind of past and present uh, at the last show, and we just strategize for the future for TCA. So hopefully, some exciting stuff will happen down the road from that meeting. Good. Good. Well, what's what are some new and exciting stuff that you got going on these days? What's, what's well, we uh, we unveiled uh, yeah yeah this is actually a very very exciting year for us 2017. Uh, it's all about uh, developing new value added uh, professional consulting services that we could pass on to our uh, sub agents, uh, even complementary. So one of the first was we kicked off the year in January with the unveiling of uh, our cloud readiness review. So we've got in house uh, cloud solutions architects that we can assign to a particular agent or pro- a project. That'll um, you know help them talk that cloud talk with their clients. You know, and, and this guy's you know, twenty-seven year veteran has overseen fifty different cloud migrations and transitions. Former CIO of a major company, and uh, he um, he'll get involved for for you know any of our partner projects to do uh, cloud assessments, cloud readiness reviews, help them open that dialogue and develop opportunities to to assist their clients. And then next month we're going to be unveiling another um, service that's coming down the pipe and. Two three weeks, we'll do the press release about that. An additional professional service value added like this that we can also push down channel. Uh, we're still developing our uh, finishing up the final touches on our software DCI track uh, that's got its own domain uh, at this point, and this is uh, industry leading cloud based software that allow anybody, agents, users, clients, to search, find, compare, and contrast side by side and source. Any data center infrastructure service from wholesale, retail, managed, and cloud from those 413 vendors of ours worldwide. Uh, there's nothing quite like it out there. It's got an integrated center of intelligence, uh, an integrated CRM that uh, the agents can use as their own CRM and deal management software. Uh, we'll even private label it for some key strategic partners and agents if they wanted to. Um, and um, so, yeah, we've got a lot of stuff uh, in the hopper right now for 2017. Right on, man. Sounds uh, sounds like some powerful stuff, and I'm definitely going to be digging into a couple of these things and giving you a shout back to uh, to follow up for sure. Um, 
A couple other questions that I'd love to just throw at you and we can, we can wrap this thing up here, but I've got to ask, what is the, the backdrop of your laptop right now? <laughs> so I don't know what, what this says about me, but um, I have a Mac, uh, a MacBook Air, and uh, I never changed it from the default. So it keeps changing every few minutes, every, I think, five or 10 minutes. I'm not sure. I never kept track of it. Uh, but right now it happens to be pink flowers just at this moment <laughs> that you're asking me, but it will change every uh, 10 minutes. It's, it's the standard stock photos that came in the MacBook. My phone, uh, it's always uh, the background photo on my phone is always my daughter. So, Right on. Beautiful, man. Well, I uh, greatly appreciate you taking the time. And I got to tell you, even though you, you poo-poo being the, the head of the, the chess club, if it wasn't for the chess club at my high school... I would never have figured out how to get onto the internet back when I was in high school because I literally went to the chess club after spending a weekend plugging the phone jack into the back of my computer and trying to figure out how the heck I could get onto the internet. I finally said, screw it. I know where the geeks are. And I went to the chess club and I just so happened that I knew a couple of them because we played ultimate Frisbee together and they taught me what a modem was. <laughs> wow. And uh, it's probably still, you know, still the case today that if you want to figure out uh, how something works, technologically speaking, you probably just go to the chess club and, and they'll know. <laughs> <laughs> that was us. <laughs> awesome. Great story, man. Well, Danny, you're awesome. I greatly appreciate you taking the time to chat today and uh, hopefully we can follow up sometime soon. Thanks, Sean. Thanks so much for the opportunity. So there you have it, folks. I hope you enjoyed the interview. And before I sign off, I really need you to know that we really do love data centers over here at Open Spectrum. It's not just a, a catchy tagline for a podcast. They are our passion and our livelihood. And I encourage you to learn more about how we serve buyers, service providers, agents, master agents, and investors in the data center hosting network and cloud services space. Uh, you can check out our website at www.openspectruminc.com, where you can download a mountain of free content that we produce, such as the numerous regional market reports and excerpts from our book, The Data Center Collocation Industry Playbook, that is now on its fourth edition. And I think at this point, we've sold close to over 1,200 copies of the book. You can also read the show notes and links from this podcast at www.openspectruminc.com forward slash I love data centers. Have a great week, and I will see you and hopefully hear from you soon.